Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. We are at part two of our Nolan trilogy. We're looking at the entire filmography of Christopher Nolan. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception. Those three films. And I am Alan. With me, as always, is Sol. Hello. And joining us this week to discuss the works of Nolan is our friend, perhaps now colleague, let's say. Let's not get too familiar. <laughs> Emily Slade. <laughs> wow! <laughs> what a what an introduction there. Cold, cold. Uh, yeah. Well, God. that's that is appropriate. Uh, we, we we worked out last week that Christopher Nolan is cold on his on the emotional front. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Are you going to start taking away my chair to in, in force me working? <laughs> Did, you saw that right? That Christopher Nolan has no chairs on set because if you're sitting down, you're not working, which is like totally ableist. But like, Nolan, <laughs> you make all right movies. I think we discussed this on our previous episode, yeah. but mm-hmm. apparently it is also bullshit, which I think we also discussed on oh. our previous episode, or at least he said it was bullshit. I think Anne Hathaway said it, and then he went. His people were like, "No." <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, well. Today we're we're dealing with uh, the midsection of Nolan's career. He's established oh. as a Hollywood oh. uh, A-lister. What a, an absolutely astonishing run of films. <laughs> I mean, you said you messaged me and you were like Christopher Nolan, and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you were like The Prestige, Inception, and The Dark Knight, and I was like, all right. <laughs> Out of all of them, yeah. Well, what, what do you think of his earlier work, uh, just as a kind of quick rundown? So it's like, I've seen Memento, I used to watch that a lot, and I, I liked it. Watched it a lot, trying to figure it out. Very <laughs> like, confusing sh- film. Fuck <laughs> you. It's like, gimmick the movie, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I don't think it is. What Our takeaway, weirdly enough, both Alan and I last week couldn't be asked re-watching the film properly, so instead <laughs> we rewatched it in chronological order. As in plot. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. The takeaway we both had was, oh, this works as like a really strong film, even when you remove the gimmick from it. Yeah. Okay. It totally holds up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was surprising, because I thought it was going to just be a completely run-of-the-mill crime thriller, but no, it was was surprising. It, It really did show how good a film it is. Nice. Yeah. I did used to watch it a lot. It was one of my faves, I'm not going to lie. We'll ask you about Batman Begins in a bit, but let's not deal with that just yet. Mm. <laughs> uh, let's jump into The Prestige. And But, like, I think I remember when The Prestige came out, I went to the cinema and I watched The Illusionist with Edward Norton. Because there were two magic movie blockbusters that year. Yeah, we yeah. the shit yeah. one to pe- spend money on. And then we all got The Prestige on DVD and we ended up watching it, like, every month for the next five years or something. The Illusionist is... Um... I mean, it was very much the bigger film at the time. And yeah, I agree, it's kind of shit. Uh, I can't remember a single thing from it except the poster and being in the cinema foyer. (laughs) When you tell people that there's this wonderful film called The Illusionist, uh, you don't have to go, no, not the Ed Norton (laughs) one, the animated one from uh, (laughs) Sylvian Chomet. I mean, if anyone hasn't watched The Prestige, there's some pretty big twists and turns in it, and we are going to spoil them all. So, you know, bear that in mind. Yeah, so uh, The Prestige, it is a Victorian set drama about two 
rival magicians, basically. That's your, your standard setup. He's made a lot of films that are very specifically about little sub-areas I'm, like, really interested in. I love films about magicians. There's not <laughs> a lot of them out there, really. And there's certainly not very many good ones, but it's, like, a, a weird little... Not sub-genre, whatever you'd call it. A little area of films. Films about <laughs> yeah. magicians. And he's he's done one of them. So, yeah, The Prestige. And it's a good one, I would say. Mm. I would say it's a good one. He, and not, I'm not going to jump into any spoilers, but in terms of the twisty-turny twists, he I have read a whole article about how clever he is to lay down foundations and lay down hints and tricks without i watched this movie a lot i used to watch this movie all the time i've seen it so many times and it was only this latest viewing that i got one of the things it wasn't one of the big things because it like i'm not that dumb but like there was one twist in this that only this time around i was like the big twist they tell you with the opening shot yeah okay with all the top hats with the prestige Oh yeah, of course. So we all, all right. Know that's so coming. so specifically, the film is about two two rival magicians assistants, essentially not on stage, but kind of working as stooges and stagehands and things. Uh, yeah, learning the craft. Yeah, um, and one of them has a weird thing for tying this more difficult knot when he goes up on stage, <laughs> pretending to be a member of the audience. That the on stage magician's assistant then has to escape from and she seems to be really into it but she is the girlfriend of the other magician played by hugh jackman the wife sorry of hugh jackman one day she dies because she drowns because she can't get out the implication being oh he's probably tied that fucking knot again even though we told him not to (laughs) uh he being christian bale playing the other magician and it sparks this whole rivalry and it kind of comes down to Christian Bale unveiling this incredible trick that he has involving a doppelganger and um, no sorry it's not involved I've just given it away um <laughs> where he steps out you know he steps into a door and then appears out of another door across the room that's basically it and it drives Hugh Jackman crazy because he can figure out how magic tricks are done but he can't figure out how this one's done and the film is really about his madness that is caused as he tries to find and replicate the secret of the trick but at a certain point it kind of transcends that and becomes more about this elaborate plot yeah and there's lots of sort of twists and turns in that in terms of who's controlling the narrative at any point and who's like who's kind of got the upper hand this film is impenetrable for like the first half hour every time i've watched this film like the first time i watched it I think I was going through all of Christopher Nolan's films post The Dark Knight. For about half an hour, I was just like, I I don't have a fucking clue what is going on. I do not understand this film. I cannot begin to follow it. And I, and I think the real trick of this film, because, you know, initially I thought, well, I'm just struggling to follow things or it's a complicated film. I, I think it's edited. It's so fast paced that you just cannot tell what is going on. But then as it begins to give you, and and it's worth noting if you haven't seen it, the whole thing is in very Christopher Nolan fashion told completely out of chronological order. As it begins to go on, just pieces begin to fall into place. And by the end of the film, it's like, oh, that made perfect sense. I understood every second of it. I just had to kind of stick with it and let it all fall into place. And I, I think it's really remarkable bit of storytelling because, you it's know, the tight. whole point... It's a tight movie. Mm, the, the whole point is obviously they are 
mirroring the the structure of a magic trick as closely as they can within film editing techniques and they lay out the structure of a magic trick um the prestige being a kind of emotional catharsis after the twist a kind of payoff of the twist anyway um yes emily sorry i've kind of got in the way there what is the twist you or the the hint of the twist that you only just picked up on the big main one that we'll go into later is 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 very obvious and i never miss that one please don't for a second think i did even i think i find the movie even a little bit patronizing near the end where it's like did did you get do you do you know what did you and it's like yeah we we got it like 25 minutes ago like calm down movie it's a throwaway line at the beginning where he's talking to his wife when she's still alive and she's like well who are you some stranger with no name you change your name you come here and you who are you you're like you're you oh you're not who you say you are i never picked up on that so then later on, when Hugh Jackman, there's this a, a sort of mini reveal and Hugh Jackman starts speaking in an English accent. And I always used to just be like, what the, did no one tell Hugh Jackman that he was speaking in an English accent? Why is he doing that now? I never got that he was the like Lord, the like Count. And like, that was the whole thing. Like I, I always, I was like, maybe he just won some money and now he has a big house. Like I don't, what? The reason that doesn't come across as this big twist, the big reveal, it's because it doesn't really mean anything and it's not, it doesn't add anything. But it does, just... it means everything. The whole reason that Christian Bale is going to be in prison, the whole, it's, it, it's all part, the reason he's able to uh, enact his revenge and get the machine from Tesla and all of these things is because he's a wealthy lord. But you never question it, you never think, because it's all about class. Obviously, Christian Bale's the like working class, all your ego, yeah, shiny shoes. Like, Hello, my like name's Christian sort of, Bale. I'm talking with my real voice. Hugh Jackman always uh, was in an American accent, which I always thought was weird. But again, it's it's a put on American accent to be, seem more exotic to the punters. And he's actually this English lord. And that's the whole thing. That's why he's so rich. And that's why he's able to keep Christian Bale in prison. That's why he's able to buy the machine. That's why it's all of these things that I never got. And I always just used to be like, why the fuck is Hugh Jackman now suddenly got an English accent? I'm so confused what is going on and it was only this viewing that i was like oh he was the lord the whole t- now everything makes complete sense no emily it's a different guy <laughs> i know no, it's not it's 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 his doppelganger is the english one yeah it's the Shut actor up. who he just came really successful no. yeah, bought, yeah yeah you can't fool me peerage. I know, I know. It's really impressive how they do the uh, the prosthetics on Hugh Jackman to kind of make him look. I've got to say, I love it. I, I've never really picked up on the makeup in this film until this viewing, mm. but it is phenomenal. I mean, there's the obvious. And... You know, they they bury Christian Bale under a, a heap of makeup to disguise him. Yeah, that's you know that's obvious. They stick a beard on him, whatever. But Hugh Jackman's counterpart, as part of the film, uh, just as a reminder, um, they go looking for Hugh Jackman's character's doppelganger so they can do a magic trick where he has a double. And Hugh Jackman plays the kind of Russ Ross (laughs) um, (laughs) dual roles thing. But the second guy, just because obviously it would be ridiculous, bit of prosthetic makeup on him, just to make him look a bit different. And it's really good because it's obviously it's Hugh so Jackman good. but you can't really put your finger on what they've done yeah. so yeah I mean in terms of 
the script, and and this is pretty typical of Nolan's writing. I guess Jonathan Nolan as well. It it is very densely packed. It's got all this stuff that's giving you clues without it being obvious. It's really nice writing in that sense. You got a bit at the beginning where there's a trick where they make a bird disappear and then they bring it back, but actually they're not. Uh, It's they're killing a bird and then just bringing a a double (laughs) out, which is a big clue you know there's a little kid going oh what, what happened to his brother like that's a clue yes yeah. it's, it's such such a nice clue though because that is again it's it's telling you the the twist and it means nothing to you at that point which is the beauty of it yeah i love films that just rebel pave the in... way for you yeah plus it's set, yeah. it sets it's... and like and like Rebecca Hall was is that her name Rebecca Hall where she she was terrified she improvised the line where she was like I know what you are and she panicked because she was like oh god have I just given away the clue and Nolan was like keep it in and like she just she says that halfway through the movie she's like I know what you are today you don't love me but tomorrow you might like they're just fucking telling you uh, we haven't actually stated this clearly but Christian Bale's character it turns out is actually a pair of identical twins who share a life. That is the big secret they keep from everyone, including their family, immediate family. And even that, you know, is is set up and explained because you see them earlier on with the 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 old Chinese magician guy. Yeah, who produces a fishbowl from seemingly nowhere, full of water. But the trick is that he he appears to be crippled, but he's actually incredibly muscular and healthy, and he just carries this fishbowl under his robe between his legs <laughs> and then pretends to be crippled the rest of the time. Yeah. And they make a big point of watching That's him leaving the, the show and going, well, he looks legitimately crippled to me. No, that is the act. He's keeping mm-hmm. it up. And there's a lot of that about living for your art and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, But yeah, so uh, because Christian Bale's character is actually twins, there's a lot of stuff with the wife where she's like going, oh, sometimes you say you love me and I believe it and sometimes it's not true. You get this real sense that at least on some level she's seeing two different people and and she doesn't understand why although you get by the impression by the end that she does know what's going on she wants him to admit it and because he won't she kills herself which is a bit of a classic nolan (laughs) what suicide no using a woman's pain to continue a man a man's plot (laughs) oh boys we're gonna get into that don't you worry (laughs) none of his movies pass the bechdel test really well we we touched on this last week as well we we spoke about uh batman begins which obviously led us on to what a terrible terrible character rachel dawes is which led me to, I kind of get the impression Christian Bale isn't that great at writing women. Uh, Christian Bale. Christ- <laughs> I'm sure he isn't I was like, either. wait, what? <laughs> uh, no, sorry. Uh, I, pro- I promise you, in every movie that you've given me, a woman is dies and is used to um, as a like a characterization, a, a personality trait for the male they are they are not their own characters and they are used to push forward the male character they are literally props yeah but the the thing with nolan i think is and we did sort of discuss this some what last week he he's not emotionally driven he's not creating stories that are emotionally driven they're very plot plot driven uh, yeah but the emotions cari- and women aren't intrinsically tied together it's very emotional leonardo dicaprio will go into it like He's very emotional in terms of suffering. I think there's an argument 
I think there's an argument, though, that almost all of the men in this film are also props. Um, I think the only two legitimate characters are the two leads, Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Um, And even then, they're kind of very... You don't really feel like you get a sense of who they are and what makes them tick beyond the very superficial... Because you're not told who they are. Yeah. Yeah. There's the plot that you don't know who they are, I guess. So I, I know what you're saying. It'll be interesting to continue this discussion in the next two movies. For this one, I think I understand because the whole point is that everyone's meant to be a bit sort of, ooh, who are they? La la la. The motivational factors for these characters are twofold. Love, and that's a secondary thing, but the main one is professional uh, admiration or validation in some way. Th- they have these very basic driving factors and it means they butt heads. And, and that's it, really. It's... At an emotional level, it's very simple, and I think that stands for most Nolan films. But he wraps it up in these very, very interesting stories and and and, and tightly woven stories as well. Uh, and that's fine. That's that's what you, especially you know what you're getting with that. But yeah, you're not you're not going to get a good emotional story. Uh, and if your male leads a male, then what's a nice easy way? Uh, wife's dead. Right, great. Tick. That's that job done. Um, you know, if he was writing a male. Uh, a lead female, the husband would be dead. Like, that would be it. Why hasn't he, though? Did you get stage magician women back in that era who were taken Almost seriously? Almost definitely. No. Did you? Yes, like, in the same way that there were black people in Victoria, England. Like, I think you can look back on history and see just because you're not seeing it in the movies doesn't mean it didn't mm. happen. I don't personally know, but there were women pirates that are never in the movies. They are. Margot Robbie's going to play one. Cutthroat Island. There was probably female Victorian magicians as well. Um, actually, there weren't really any female magicians. No, it wasn't a thing. Um, okay, but like this is one movie. How many movies are you guys rec- like? I'm not coming for you guys. I'm just trying to make a point. That... Oh no, I you know I, I think we're gonna make the point. Like I say, I I don't think Christopher Nolan's great with women. Um, no, he, he he tries with Inception. Not no, to jump ahead. He tries. We'll go into that. I think I'll say it now. I wrote a whole thing. Um. I just feel as a woman watching his movies, it's, it's, if I was writing movies, I would probably end up writing the same sort of characters because that's what I'm attuned to writing. It's what I'm good at writing. I can tell wonderful stories by just going into banks that I, I feel safe in and I feel like I can do a good job in. So I don't blame him for that. It does suck that a lot of his women either die or are used as sacrifices or punishments or uh, retro- like whatever. They're used to support the male characters and they are props. Now, he, because he has been so successful and his main demographic tends to be the sort of white male, cinemas have taken this and then allowed more room for more white male movies, which are never as good quality as Christopher Nolan movies. Mm. Whatever you might think of his filmography, he tends to have a pretty good run in making movies. But when you give space to other people that are mediocre, it's still not because you're still giving voices to the Christopher Nolan wannabes. They're just not as good. And that's not Christopher Nolan's fault. But he, I think now in his career, he does have a sort of responsibility to step up and start being more diverse in his writing and his casting. Even if he were to just get external writers in to help him with character or just simply cast actors and then get their input on the character. Well, I, I, you know, to give him some credit, I think he is making a conscious effort, whether it's successful or not. Um, I haven't really looked into anything about Tenet, but... I'm pretty sure one of the leads is 
Black, John David Washington. Is he not one of the the lead actors yes, in that film? I, I have I, seen that. I, I don't know be if he's the to see lead, what the women but... are like in that movie. Yeah, and um, I again, I think Interstellar marked a, a real effort to make a film that was certainly more emotionally driven, but uh, I I think it and was it's not to, like, about being more... emotionally driven. It doesn't have to be em- women in emotion. Oh no, I I, I don't I don't mean that in relation to diversity i mean that in relation to answering his critics you know a lot of people say mm-hmm. oh you make cold emotionless films so i think interstellar was very much him going okay i'm gonna not do that next and um so i, I don't know i think he is slowly forcing himself there but you can make the argument that he should already be there yeah um, and like to do dunkirk and to cast entirely white people is just fundamentally historically inaccurate. Well, you know, they they run past the uh, the black battalion at one point. Not don't good they? enough. They are Come there. On, Where's their uh, narrative? Where's their subplot? Well, I mean, Spike Lee's going to make that. Okay, fine. I just watched like... the, the Five Bloods the other day. It was good. But yeah, I mean, fair. It's a it's a fair point you're making, but you're sort of it's as much Christopher Nolan as anyone else. It's like you're asking, you're saying he it's his responsibility to break the mold and fair enough if you're in a position of power you can make you can affect some changes yeah i don't know enough about dunkirk i'm really not your history guy but again i i kind of feel like i know there were a lot of people of color there but my understanding is they were still very much a minority and i do understand the impulse that if you're going to make a film of those guys then that should be the film it should which is kind of what comment was about the film should be about these people of color and shining a light on them and dunkirk not to get ahead of next week but it you know it was kind of a run-of-the-mill account of this is the war um from what i remember it wasn't really trying to dig a little bit deeper if you know what i mean so i mean look i i get what you're saying i i i, I think this speaks partly to why i think I always forget how much I like Christopher Nolan's work because it does feel so cold and impersonal and just cookie cutter for the masses. It doesn't feel like there's this personal stamp on it because everyone is just a bland white male. And yet there is such a personal stamp because they all follow the same themes. They're all about these men who are suffering because their wives have died and... Um, or their girlfriends have died and they're suffering and they've got to they've got to do this fun cool movie thing in order to get through their emotional journey but that's it i don't think christopher nolan's going i want to tell this emotional story of this particular thing it's just like i need something that drives this character what's an easy thing that everyone can relate to death great everyone knows what it's like to lose someone just pass the bechdel test it's so easy to pass the bechdel test Morty, do you know what the Bechdel test is? The what? For God's sake, Morty, the formula for measuring female agency in a story proposed by lesbian cartoonist Allison. What the hell are they teaching you in that school? Other stuff! Then you've killed us both! Why is lesbian part of her job title? Oh, now you're progressive? What is the test? You have to tell... (coughs) Morty, Morty, two women, they both have to have names and talk to each other about something... Rick! Other than a man. Oh, Rick, listen to me. Once upon a time, my mom and my sister, listen to me! Mom, can I try your tea? Yes. Summer. Yes. Try my tea. It's so good. It's so warm. Not a single movie of his does it. The, you know, is there, any, there, is there any point in these films where 
the male characters have a conversation that's about anything other than the end goal of what they're trying to achieve. He is ultimately a white, cisgendered male. He's talking from his own experience. I'm trying to write various projects at the moment. I, I'm, I'm just going to write everything in terms of gender, how I would like instinctively do it without thinking about it. And then I'm just going to reverse everyone's gender because I feel like that's going to yeah. undo any sort of internal... Uh, bias I may have. Now, I don't know if that is really the way to do it. I, I think, you know, the, the fact that I'm not No, that's thinking... not the way to do yeah. it, because then you get then you get fucking death um... Oh, the Tarantino movie. Death Proof. Me and my girlfriends love that movie. We think it's fucking fabulous. It's not even the best pro-feminist film within well, Grindhouse. It doesn't have to be! God, why can't you can have your little trashy white male movies? Why can't we have our trashy female covered movies? Like Alright, look. I think we can all agree that if if you're looking at Death Proof as a good example <laughs> of female empowerment, then we're in a this, oh this, my God. The, the industry is in a lot of trouble. I mean, uh, yeah, hang on. The point you were using Death Proof as an example of what not to do, and then jumped into how great it is. I was going to give you an example. There's one moment in Death Proof that you can tell that these female characters were written by a man, and it's when they abandon their friend who's dressed as a cheerleader with that bloke as collateral as they go take the car out for a spin. No one would do that. No woman would abandon her friend with a guy that's clearly going to fucking, like, go do God knows what to her. I think that's the kind of problems you're going to come across if you just do something as simple as switch genders, because you might have written something that no woman would ever really do, because that's not the woman's yeah, world. Yeah, but I, but I think you know that I mean? probably was a conscious decision when Quentin Tarantino was writing it. I bet he thought, like, ooh, would women do this? And then he probably thought, thought like, fuck yeah, women can do what they want, and, like, you know... But no, I know what you're saying. I'd be interested to know, has Diminishing Returns ever passed the Bechdel test, Alan? <laughs> We've never had two women on, so no. <laughs> yeah, no. Have we not? Ever? No. Ooh. Ooh. Terrible. Look, Christopher Nolan hates women, so let's put a pin in that. I'm sure it'll come up later. Mm-hmm. It will. But I think, I I mean, one of my major problems with The Prestige is I find it very emotionally unsatisfying, and like... Like we said, you kind of expect that with Nolan, but even from the mm. the plot point of view, like the payoffs aren't emotionally satisfying. Like the the way the th- the reveals come, I think the emotion works. You kind of recognize it as a all right. That character's happy with that. The only one moment I would say is a real failing is I suppose the very final moment, the prestige, when uh, Christian Bale's double, you know, he wasn't executed, goes and picks up his daughter and it's like oh he can be a father to his daughter instead and she kind of has a happy time with without losing her dad uh as far as she's aware i think that is meant as your emotional moment and yeah to be fair it doesn't really hit on that level but i think it's fine i don't i don't think the prestige is ever set up as an emotional drama yes it is it opens with somebody's wife dying it is entirely fueled by emotion I was, but that's what I mean. I, it it opens it opens with someone's wife dying, but in a very emotionless way. It should be the most emotional movie, but it's not. Yeah, but it's not trying to be. I don't think that's a failing on the film. It, it's it's when Hugh Jackman is going after Christian Bale's character it, it, because his wife said it's not because the emotional outpouring of his wife dying all that it's just vengeance it's this very cold like well that happened to me and so i have to do this to atone for it it's mm-hmm. it's not emotional 
And then the same way they were, and then it very quickly, that emotional level of the wife dying turns into just professional jealousy and, and that sort of thing. And, and there's no, there's no line there. It just sort of like, okay, we're dealing with this now. But I think that's fine. You know, films do that, you know, night of the living dead, if it was handled in a different way, could be emotionally devastating. The, the amount of people who die in that and the trauma they go through. But it's a zombie movie. It's a horror movie. It's not trying to make you cry about the loss of a loved one. It's it's doing different things. And I don't think the prestige is using death in this way. I don't think it's trying to be an emotionally affecting drama. The story that's going on here, the problem is the story that's going on here and all the twists and turns it's not strong enough to hold it on its own without any emotional intent. I, I disagree. Because... I think it's a it's a mystery box to uncover, and it, it's it plays out in a way that I think is quite beautifully constructed and falls into place. And um, it's beautifully like... constructed, yes, but not satisfying. And that no, that I was disagree. ultimately I my disagree. big I... problem with it. Like the way when I came away from this, it was just sort of unsatisfying. Like because. The fact that they're twins is just so obvious from... Right well, I, th this is something that amazingly hasn't come up on the podcast before, but I think I have a real blind spot here and you don't. Like, I, you know, one of my favourite <laughs> films is Sleuth and, and you hate it because you're like, what? The, everyone knows what's going on when, you know, so-and-so walks out as so-and-so. And it's like, well... I didn't <laughs> when I first watched that film. So I, did, you not, did you not get that they were twins? Not the first time I watched it, no. No, not the first time I what, watched it. What, not until it. it was actually revealed? How 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 late in did you Oh, I, I pieced it together before the reveal, but, you know, not yeah. massively Which before. Which you're meant to. Yeah, it was still in that you're final moment. You're meant to get moment. it just before. Exactly. And that's what makes it satisfying. Christopher Nolan, this is the article I read, it's when Michael Caine is describing the the man goes, or Hugh Jackman's describing the man goes into the door and it comes out the other door and Christopher Nolan films it and edits it in such a way that you never ever see the second man come out the door. So the idea of a twin never crosses your mind unless you've already pictured him coming out the other door. And then of course that's where your brain goes because where else is it going to go? I actually thought I'd missed something because I, I rewatched this with my girlfriend and I, I was watching waiting for the shot where christian bale you know steps into the, the 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 cupboard or whatever it is and then steps out again and then and then they cut away and i was like what yeah <laughs> if i completely they cut away because otherwise you'd guess it you'd guess the twist and so he misdirects the audience by not showing you and then have michael kane telling you it's a doppelganger already and Hugh Jackman's moved on by this point. So the the audience have forgotten to try and figure it out already because you're yeah. just being told yeah, yeah, yeah. what's going on. And you're 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 confused. And I think if you're not trying to figure yeah, it out, because exactly. of course it takes two seconds to genuinely be like, well, if someone else stepped out the end, it's probably a twin, isn't it? Of course it takes two seconds. But anyone that's invested in the movie and Nolan does a good job of establishing this world and, and gets you invested, whether hardcore emotionally or not, you are invested with these people because I, and again, I know what you're talking about when you talk about him being emotionless, but the driving passion and, and jealousy and force behind these characters that, that keeps urging the story along is what keeps you invested. And that's a form of emotion. I mean, I, I, yeah. And, and, you know, it's also worth mentioning that there's a lot more going on than just these two are twins. There are other twists there are other kind of bordering on twists, kind of emotional reveals. Um, I mean, maybe not emotional, but like character um, motivational twists. 
And the film is told out of order in a way that also means that you're kind of conscious, you know, constantly trying to put it together in a way that you wouldn't typically be doing. So I, I think it is very easy to. Well, not... that's, that, I think that's what I mean. Like, I as a structured thing, I think it's great, but uh, it, it's like watching a murder mystery and then the reveal at the end, and it's just a bit like, oh, is that was that the reveal? Oh, okay, oh, it wasn't that. Mm. To be honest, I think the satisfying reveal is the other one. You know, I think. That twist plays in a way such as you can buy that it has driven Hugh Jackman, Robert Angier, uh, you can buy that it's driven him to absolute madness. And then the reveal of him is all the more, you know, powerful because you kind of figure that one out, I think. You do kind of know what that is. But you kind of think, no, surely he's not doing that. That'd be insane. And then the reveal is, oh no, he is he's committing suicide on stage every night for his craft. Like, that is essentially what it comes down just, to. Just to get Christian Bale, just to get revenge on Christian Bale, because he only does 100 performances of that. Mm. He only dies 100 times. And it was it was this time around as well that that really, really got me. It's the bit where they cut back to when he first uses the machine on himself, and then he picks up the gun, and the other one goes, no, no, and you're not quite sure. Because then he says, I never knew if I was going to be the guy in the box or the guy at the other end of the theatre so so the one that steps into the machine there's no real knowing where that one's going to end up and that's that's terrifying that's when i really thought about that and watched the reaction and watched hugh jackman shoot himself this time around i really was like gosh like everything about how it works the logic behind such a device the way it's filmed it's like well he's obviously just drowning himself and then they're like a duplicate stepping out over there you know it doesn't make any sense that it would work the other way really and i do get that his character obviously is factored that you know it doesn't think that way and thinks it's more of a 50 50 but what I, what I want more of from that character perhaps this is back to the emotional element here more of that and it does deal with it but getting your hands dirty i am prepared to kill myself to to make the perfect trick it's like that drive that professional drive mm. that i love that. that's yeah, but I, I want more of that. I want more emotional wearing of that. Isn't a shot of hundreds of dead hymns in a load of vats, like, enough of that? You get... You understand the scale of what he's done to himself to, to achieve No, because this? I never really... we never I never really saw the doubt from him, the, the worry about that. It, it just sort of, like, he makes the decision to do that. Well, no, I think that's the point. I think he doesn't have doubt. I think he's dead set that this is what he's gonna do and what he wants to do and i think that works i think that's every bit as powerful as to be honest i don't think i'd like it as much if i saw him umming and ahhing and doubting it every night i think i like that his his conviction is he's gonna step into that tank every night and probably yeah. die yeah I agree. I mean, it, it's... I, I was going to do a joke and pretend I didn't like the film and then the prestige would be that actually I did. But um, I can't really do it. Like, I, I really love this film. I, I think it's absolutely incredible. Partly because it's so offbeat and just kind of doing its own thing. And, you know, as if all that wasn't enough, you've got, uh, you know, really good cinematography from Wally Pfister, as per usual. We've, we spoke about this last week. It's... And as if all that wasn't enough, David Bowie's in it. So, slam dunk. The thing is, there's too many... Cats and hats. There's far too many cats and hats. It's like, what are we doing, guys? We're making 
Are we making the cat and the hat too here? Is Mike Myers going to pop up any minute? There's thousands of cats and hats. There's two cats, actually, but there's thousands of hats. <laughs> there's there's a few too many loose hats, ends for me in the story loose as hats. well. That I don't... <laughs> I don't know. There was just too many, too many things. Hats. I was just like, "Well, what? What's this?" About? We know there's too many hats, Alan. We've sorry, established me, there's too many hats. Tell in the me film. your loose ends. Sol, I swear to God, one day I'm gonna find you and I'm gonna gag you, Alan. What are these loose ends that you're talking about? Just things like, I mean, I've no idea what happened to Scarlett Johansson's character. She just seemed to disappear. I knew you were gonna say that. So she just left. She says since she died, since your wife died, because she didn't figure it out. Cause she's not allowed to. Cause she's dumb. She said, since your wife died, you've not mourned her. Because obviously the one meeting Scarlett Hansen was the one that never cared for Rebecca Hall. So she's like, it's really freaky that you don't care that your wife has died. I'm over. This is done. I don't want to see you anymore. So she leaves. It's very quick and it's very nothingy considering it's been such a thing. So I understand. But I wouldn't call it a loose end. Yes, it was very abrupt. It's a perfect example of the character only existing to further serve the character development of the men in question once because she was done once it needed to get back to their bromance she was out of the picture yeah and it, it's really there just to double down on the fact that he's so committed to his craft that he's gonna you know not tell her like some of the editing felt very rushed and and some scenes felt rushed uh, like that was the thing that jumped out at me a couple of times by design that because like i say at the start of this film it is impenetrable it is like what the fuck is going on and part of that is that it's so quick paced and the it's similar to what you said with i think batman begins in our previous episode but like it it almost feels like a montage after montage at the start rather than scenes Mm, that you're watching but i think that's very much by design i think this film is put together in a way where you're meant to be completely unsure of what's going on, not really know where you are. It's like uh, A Clockwork Orange is written in NADSAT, the weird slang language from the future, and it's it's done in such a way, this is the book I'm talking about, rather than the film, it's done in such a way so that when you start reading it, you're like, I can barely follow this, what the fuck is going on? It, it really kind of causes a sense of um, confusion, I, I guess. And and then as you read the book, you kind of start to pick up the language and by the end of it, you just read it fluently and you're completely on board with it. And it's it's put together in that way on purpose. And I think the prestige is much the same thing. It starts out making you just feel like you don't have a clue what's going on because it's supposed to be a magic trick as a mm. film. I never really used to think about the year 2006 being a particularly good year for film. In fact, I think I had it in my head as quite a weak year. But over the last few weeks on this podcast, you know, we, we did This Is England recently, one of my favourite films. I gave it a 10 out of 10. Bloody hell. Even more recently, we did Borat, 2006. Another of my favourites. Like, <laughs> But on this rewatch, I've watched this film so many times and I, I come away with so much admiration for it every time, the fact that it still holds up to repeat viewings to the extent that it does for me, when it's, you know, a film that really shouldn't because it's all about these twists and turns. I just think it's an incredible piece of work. So I have upped my score, Alan, to 10 out of 10. That's absolutely insane. Okay. I have no problem saying this is my favourite Christopher Nolan film by a mile. Um, And if you remember last week, uh, I was talking about the Christopher Nolan directorial 
uh, placement in my list of average directorial filmographies, uh, that bump from a 9 to a 10 has pushed Christopher Nolan up to number 3. <laughs> Gosh. So let's see how high you can get with, with each <laughs> subsequent film I'm reevaluating. Well, that's uh, fascinating. I mean, I uh, I can see why someone would like this film more than I did, um, but that's a bit far. Uh, there's there's a there's a few too many, like I say, kind of loose elements for me to really like that much. And ultimately, yeah, I found it all unsatisfying somehow. I think part of, perhaps part of that is like the first time I watched this, I. I thought twins like so early on it was I perhaps I'd heard there was a twist and I was looking for something I don't know but plus maybe this is just again an area of knowledge but identical twins in magic is like as old as it comes it's it's like if Hugh Jackman went to see him and doing a cutting the lady in half trick and was like oh my god how does he do it this is impossible (laughs) like and then he like cuts women in half for 10 years until he figures out how to do it oh what a film (laughs) <laughs> it just feels like it. F- but hang on, isn't that what the Greatest Showman's about? I haven't seen it. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Ultimately, somehow unsatisfying because I think the, basically I think this is it. The elements in the story that are like, oh, that's interesting, are the ones that don't get explored for me. Um, anyway, ultimately, I gave it a six out of ten. What the fuck, Alan? Wow. Sort Hello. yourself out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think this is I think this is very firmly an eight or a nine, and there's just enough in it for me on a personal level that tips it over the edge into being a ten. I think a six is absurd. You you've lost your fucking mind. I I watched this movie loads when I was younger. I really I really do love it. I love everything. I love that it's set in the Victorian era. I love the closeness of it. I love the cleverness of it. I. I, I really do appreciate this film. It does annoy me. The older I'm getting, the more I'm getting annoyed about the female characters, especially when it keeps happening. And I, I, I'm going to give it an eight. I think it deserves an eight. I think that's more reasonable. <laughs> Six out of ten. Ten out of ten. That's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Absurd. Yeah, I, I never really give 10 out of 10s on a first viewing it's very rare that that happens to me it's usually like i'll go wow that was has to earn that. yeah that was great and then i'll come back to it and i'll come back to it and eventually i'll go you know what it's that good it's a 10 and bump it up <laughs> and it's finally happened to the prestige for me so six out of ten that's it alan come on <laughs> <laughs> well um, anyway so um emily you said there that christopher nolan films often incite fanaticism no you can't help but come into this movie and not see every single person that had a black t-shirt with heath ledger's face on it for 10 years since 2008 the posters in every single person's bedroom and the constant the tattoos on every single person's thigh and arm every halloween every halloween still well that you know some of them have moved on to harley quinn now but yeah it 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 was it was good we'd never really seen anything like it before it did some different stuff it's got some great themes it works really well within the narrative of the story i think it helped that he died it definitely didn't do them any harm yeah the character poss- possibly undeserved. Well, that's it. That, that's because we do we do now. It's an Oscar-winning character now. Yeah, my point I was getting to was that the fanaticism of the Joker, I guess specifically in this film, 
the Dark Knight we're now talking about. It, it it really primes someone like me, and I imagine this is true for Saul, definitely. To hate to, it? To hate it, yeah. yeah oh, but... God, go, go back and listen to our Joker episode, and I think you will hear that us us fighting through that being primed to hate the film to kind of come out yeah, feeling because... it's, you know, not terrible but not great um that's the that's joker that i'm talking about yeah. rather than the dark knight i i completely agree look i but I, then i have to say i i have a i have no time for method i have no time for me. method is a luxury <laughs> to be a method actor is a luxury yeah but it's a you... very privileged actor who's a method actor well yeah i get it on christopher nolan films there are no luxury you can't even have a chair to sit on but <laughs> In most big Hollywood blockbusters, you're allowed a bit of luxury. I, d- I don't think, you know, I, I, I know, you, yeah, fair enough, it is a luxury and you don't have that available to you nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100 outside of being at the very top. But that's not to say it's a completely invalid way of doing things just because poor people can't do it. Yeah, I know what you're saying. But I also think the character itself is... is... <laughs> I'm biased. I'm so biased because it instigated this sort of madness in in men at the time where they were like, yeah, it was like Fight Club for a new generation. <laughs> yeah. the, Another Heath excellent Ledger film. Heath was the new Tyler Durden and the men got this idea in that, like, I, I keep saying men, po- probably some women as well, but I personally oh, plenty noticed of women. it I and experienced it with, yeah. with men who, who took it sort of in their stride to suddenly really root for this character in this sort of chaos and ugh. But the character doesn't even stand for chaos. Do I look like a guy with a plan? Fucking yes. It would Extremely take you weeks to plan plan. all of those. Yeah. So convoluted of a plan. He stands for chaos. He still, like, burns a huge, insanely huge mm. stack of money to make the point that it's not about material gain. You know, he he's absolutely yeah, about like chaos, KLF. and I think very sincerely, just because he's lying about how much effort he's put into it. I I, I will say uh, another thing that kind of primes me to dislike stuff with the Joker in it is I I touch on this in our Joker episode, and I don't think I really put it across as well as I perhaps should have. I think it's a very easy role to play in the grand scheme of things because, like, it really is just. Just chew the scenery. Just go mad, and like you're probably just gonna let go of your humanity. Yeah, it's like... it's really not hard. Like I mean, I I get it. It's you know the it's very over the top. And even Heath Ledger, as I say, like because he died, people started seeing something in his performance that perhaps wasn't necessarily there. It's a very oh, no, I mean, look performance. The fact that everyone's able to like mimic it, I don't know. It just, it's so like. I do think there's a hell of a lot going on in Heath Ledger's performance, actually. But but I think Joker, as a general rule of thumb, is a piece of piss to play. Like, you know, particularly if you go down the, you know, the Mark Hamill nailed it. And, and it really is just, you know, you've just got to kind of alternate between being a bit whimsical and then get angry, Batsy! And, you know, it's, it's just very... Mm-hmm. It's not hard. Like, it's much harder... To play a boring as fuck character like Bruce Wayne and bring something to it. Now, mm-hmm. on the flip side of that, I I do think if we're gonna get Heath Ledger out of the way up front, I do think Heath Ledger's performance transcends that. I think his performance here is utterly incredible, to be honest. Um, 
and I, you know, I'm a Joker skeptic generally, as much as I like the character. But Heath Ledger's performance actually has a lot of very odd delivery that isn't the obvious way to play it at times. And it, it really, my best guess with Heath Ledger is he watched that video, you know, old interviews with Tom Waits and went, oh yeah, I like that. <laughs> I have a growing level of popularity uh, throughout the uh, intercontinental United States, uh, <laughs> Japan, and uh, I travel extensively in Europe as well. Mm. Uh, no, I don't do half bad. I, uh, they tell me you have a new market now in Ireland, is that true? Yeah. I've performed in Dublin and done very well there as well. You look but, like uh, a leprechaun, you should do well there. <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm also big in Philadelphia. <laughs> I'll do a bit of a Tom Waits impression. Like, he, he's having fun with it, and it's, you know... An... I think the writing helps. I think yeah. he has some brilliant lines and some brilliant moments um, that lead to more interesting choices. Mm, mm. I don't... I think I think whenever you look at a very good, especially Academy-nominated performance, you always have to then really look at the writing and see if you were... And the a... direction, yeah. Yeah, and, and the and editing. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. How many choices were there? there? Oh yeah, how many yeah, did yeah. That allow and, to get to that performance. And and you know the the thing basically what I'm saying is, I think Heath Ledger, his performance of the Joker, I think it absolutely deserved the Oscar that he won for it. Hands down, no question, he earned that Oscar. But I don't think the Academy would have recognized it had he not died. Um, that's yeah. kind of where I come down on this. I don't think yeah. he would have won it had he not died, but he deserved yeah. to. Uh, okay. So yeah, that's all right though. And I think I think the character has greater legacy now. You know, ten years hindsight because the character didn't come back. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. All right, they've reinvented the joke or whatever. But you know, they didn't like. All oh, right, next film, Heath Ledger escapes from Arkham this is, and this something is the kicks thing off. though. You say the character didn't come back, and whilst of course that specific character didn't come back. And I think Nolan would have had the grace to not bring the character back. No, 100, 100%. I mean, there's 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 different takes on this. Some people think that Dark Knight Rises would have been quite Joker-heavy. I don't think it would. But I think the Joker would probably have had that role that was given to Scarecrow. He, he, he would have been the one doing funny trials with people as everything was going wrong. But what wouldn't have happened is we probably wouldn't have had... Jared Leto or Joaquin Phoenix. We wouldn't have had those. No one would have written that Joker character if without Heath Ledger and Heath Ledger dying as the Joker. Only because Todd Phillips would have cast Heath Ledger to do a prequel. No, I don't think he would have done. I don't think people would have touched the Joker in the same way. Or I, have... I, I, well, I know I don't. I don't think that's true. Honestly, I, I remember in two thousand eight thinking, well, that's it. No one's ever going to touch the Joker again because not only has he nailed it and there's nothing else to be done with it, but Heath Ledger's dead and out of respect for him, people aren't going to go near it. And, it, you know, slowly people came around to the idea of like, okay, I think it's time. We can we can do another Joker now. You know, I think for the longest time, because of the death, people were a bit more... I mean, it, it, Christopher Nolan's said as much, you know? he um, He didn't even want to touch on the Joker. There's barely a reference to the Joker in The Dark Knight Rises because of respect for Heath Ledger passing. I mean, what the film itself, it's easy to forget 
where it came from, but you know, it's it's the direct sequel to Batman Begins, which was, you know, all, all things considered, quite a modest film. Um, it was obviously a big budget affair and and reinventing a genre, but it wasn't nearly the the two hundred and thirty million extravaganza that the dark knight is you know it's a whole different you can tell there's a significant uh increase in budget yeah yeah and scope you know that comes with that and and desire to to really just go balls to the wall and and you know it's a smart thing to do they they kept back on the joker knowing he was gonna be this incredible asset to the film to wait till they had all the money in the world to to play with and and the end result is The Dark Knight, which we have spoken about on this podcast, you know, about 200 episodes ago or something. Um, I think it's a, a, a phenomenal film. Um, absolutely top of its genre in terms of, not in terms of superhero filmmaking, but in terms of action filmmaking. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think very blatantly Christopher Nolan was emulating films like Heat, Um mm. You know, I I'd struggle to think of a an action movie with big practical effects work that holds a candle to this. Honestly, you know, stuff like Mad Max: Fury Road doesn't really have any sort of storyline or character to hang on. Whereas this has a really nice functional amount, I think, to make it all work. And yeah, I think one one of the things I I quite like about this film. Uh, in relation to a big budget action film, right? So there is this whole thing where they have this extraordinary rendition and then they, you know, they're torturing people. But then they have the moment where they go, hang on, is that something you really want to do? Is that something you want to stand for? And it kind of, it doesn't get into too much detail, but it it just has that conversation, you know? Where are those Mm. lines? When is it important to just get the information? When I, And I like that, it has that element into it, you know, about as much as you're going to get in terms of character. I think you've touched on something that is perhaps something of a weakness of this film for me, really, is I, I don't, I think it feels a bit unfocused. I think it, it's trying to get into too much stuff at once. You know, I, I think the, the, the strength of the prestige is it doesn't bog down with all these little side things that it really could have done. Whereas The Dark Knight, it's like there's a... They're, you know, not only are they talking about torture and chaos and law and order and all these things that like they they get into a, the fucking ethics of hacking people's phones at one point. It's like it's just too much stuff that you're trying to tackle in one film, even if it is nearly three, well, two and a half hours long. That's all. They're all building to the same point of like, where do you draw your moral line? I am. Um, I agree. I've always thought this movie was a bit bloated, and I this was the first time I watched it that I genuinely, truly understood what was happening in every single scene. And because I used to just constantly complain, I'd be like, "The Dark Knight." You just sit around waiting for Heath Ledger to come back on screen. Like that whole segment where he goes to Hong Kong, I used to just be yeah. like, why are we here? What are we doing? There was no reason for that man to go back to Hong Kong. They could have easily not done that, but then we wouldn't have had Batman jumping out of a building. So like, mm. uh, and it's like 20 minutes and it establishes the sonar on the phone. But like, you could have done that in Gotham. We didn't need to go to Hong Kong to do that. Well, the the important part of that, is, I think, is more establishing the... Um... The fact that Batman has no jurisdiction, the fact that he will chase people to the ends of the earth based on what he sees as justice and what's necessary. Break international law. 
that's it. It opens up a whole box of questions about policing the world and things like that. And it doesn't really have the time or want to get into it. So I agree. You know, I, I think this film could be streamlined a bit, cleaned up a bit. But you know, I, I I think I have to say, you know, this is very this is a very flawed film, and I think it annoys me because it's so frequently cited as the greatest film of all time, which it so clearly mm. isn't. Mm. But mm-hmm. it's done, it's made so well in every regard, every technical regard. The direction, the cinematography, the music, the acting is all so good that mm. you kind of just gloss over these problems, these flaws with it. Oh, we're going off on a five-minute tangent. Well, you know what? Christian Bale and Michael Caine have got so much charm that I don't care. It's it just it's good enough to work in spite of its flaws. I think, and and you know, I, I'm kind of trying to highlight how good a film I think this is because I feel like I've been quite negative. Um, I think it is a good film. I just I just always remember feeling dumb watching it as well and being like why are we in a courtroom again for the third time um christian bales also massively amped up the ludicrousness of his voice for this film which i i've really tried to dig into figure it out my best i can't find any official line on this but it seems to me so apparently the official plan for batman begins was that uh, i think there's even a deleted scene where batman uses a voice modulator and I think originally they were going to like artificially tweak his voice and post when he had the suit on. And apparently you can right. see in the suit there's a little set of speakers and a microphone if you look carefully. And somewhere along the line they decided not to do that, to cut the scene that would explain it and to just have him doing his actual voice. Now I think once they made that decision, Christian Bale was like, oh, we're not going to do it in post. I'd better amp up how extreme it is. And the end result is this absolute joke of a voice that almost <laughs> almost ruins the entire film. <laughs> it's so fucking ridiculous. I get the need to like disguise his voice, but it is just... It sounds like a child trying to be a, an adult doing a prank phone call. <laughs> We've discussed this before. As with all Batman films, the least interesting thing is Batman. And, and, and you know what? I have to say, this is the best attempt to make Batman, Bruce Wayne, interesting in any Batman film shy of Batman Beyond when it's old Bruce Wayne. Because they really go out of their way to give him some fun stuff to do as Bruce Wayne. You've got to really play up the billionaire, playboy, idiot thing. You're going to use that as a cover. And I don't find him boring in this one at all. I think the whole trio of power and the struggle and the ideas that are coming through in this movie when the three of them are standing off at the end when you've got Jim Gordon, Harvey Dent and Batman and then you've got the Joker in the middle of them all I think it's all played really beautifully I think it's all interwoven quite well and no character, one character could work without the other really um, and I think Batman's really cool I really love watching Christian Bale in this role I think he really, it really works because he's got, as an actor the tools to make this character interesting mm. But then I've never really had a problem with Batman in my Batman movies, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, it does just what needs to be done, really, isn't it? But I like for me, for me, this is this is the Harvey Dent story. That that's what this film is, and I I actually I'm really on board with that. But that's because you like Aaron Eckhart from all the uh, indie films you've seen him in. <laughs> I do like Aaron Eckhart. You know, he's a funny one, isn't he? Like, what, what? He never quite made it to like A list status, but he was he's good. He's solid. 
like Harvey Dent's the one with a nice character arc and this kind of whole journey. And the Batman is some something of a well, Bruce, I guess, is something of a mirror to him with obviously the love interests coming yeah. from either side. And then the Joker is just almost like the devil on the shoulder on the other side, kind of pulling him to e- to the dark side. You know, I just don't quite buy it and maybe it's because his face turns into half cgi and mm. it's just not that kind of a film beyond that but it i think it's done about as well as one could hope for i, I think having him as the pure good character is fine after the fact when he becomes evil a little bit more of a roller coaster of okay am i gonna make this decision am i gonna do this it is very yeah, much i think that's what it needs to, yeah. well i'm just gonna savage everything now i don't care that's anymore. it it's it's just like joker flips a switch in his head mm-hmm. mm. yeah the other big the other big problem i have with that is the the in terms of performance after he's had his face bent off Aaron eckhart just does nothing to show uh, pain doesn't Ow! doesn't <laughs> slur his speech like just nothing to to gen to demonstrate that he's got a very serious injury you know and and i appreciate well, he, does. Like he, he drinks that shot and then it pours out his neck <laughs> well exactly like barbosa in that setup scene with the bank robbery with uh the, setting up the joker's character a nice little scene at the end of that you know it's the perfect getaway he just pulls out and he's in traffic and like oh it could be any school bus but it's just like He's just—he's literally driving out of a building, and then everyone, you know, just yeah. passes by, going, "Oh, it's did you see? That came out did you see that building. bus reverse into the bank? That was interesting, wasn't it? Shall we just carry on walking as if nothing's happening?" Yeah, and it's, it's good—you do just get convoys of school buses like that yeah. driving through major cities all together in a line, all joining on. Plus, it's like, yeah. "Oh, we're looking—we're looking for a school bus. Is it the one with school children on it, or the one being driven yeah. by a with clown?" The one on guy. We're, we're looking for a school bus. Oh, right. Well, here's the convoy of all the school buses. Yeah. Let's stop. Great. and go through each Let's one, the one first by one. one and we'll search them all <laughs> look, I, I, look I, I agree it's it's nonsense but on the other hand how fucking great is that opening sequence it's, it's brilliant. so it's brilliant well this is what I mean about the film being so well made that you just don't really care about the little problems that is it. the one that's kind of really jumped out at me going what the fuck <laughs> yeah, but yeah I agree generally and like the ultimate kind of sonar thing with all the phone that kind of doesn't quite well, I, I tell you what that I'll tell you what the problem I have with that is like not only that the technology doesn't make any sense when you properly scrut you know scrutinize yeah. it, but the, the basically the notion that like this terrible heinous thing is like this is a step too far, except for this one time when uh, we've decided it is justified because the the Joker is yeah. such such a threat to gotham even though it is ultimately one madman running around causing a bit of havoc like well yeah so presumably you can whip this thing out rebuild another one every time you go up against like a terrorist cell or but that that's it and that's part of the moral question that gets asked by this film in terms of where do you draw those lines and i'm not saying it gives a very satisfying answer but that's it i think the answer is well we can do it this one time for the joker because he is just that much of a problem and I think that's very unsatisfying, yeah. And it's also saying it's okay for Harvey to do it as long as no one finds out, uh, because he has yeah. to be the p- p- the politician. You know, he has to be the the, fr- yeah. the face of uh, purity. Um, mm. And I, it'd be interesting to get into mm. those things further, and like seeing him go into politics, and and like, ha- at what point do you like? Um, I think The Dark Knight is uh, an exceptional film. 
I doubt that we will see a Batman film this good uh, again within my lifetime. I don't doubt that I'll see one that is great or the one that I, on a personal level, enjoy more because it, you know, has aliens in it or something. But um, trying to be objective, I th- I think it's about as good a Batman film as one could hope for. And I give it a 9 out of 10. I kind of agree to a, a large part, I think, as, you know, ultimately, you know, genre action films go. It, it, it holds me a lot more than many others do uh, i think it has i you know you've you've said it's a bit bloated I, I found quite a nice balance of like action and and plot to get stuck into i was all i mean right it zips it, along you yeah. know it's it's not like it bores me i just mean when i try and yeah. really analyze the structure it feels a bit like they could have streamlined it and i do think that's you know nolan is not going to make a film that's just about oh what this goes over here and this blows up and bang bang you know he is going to bring something more to it it may not be heavy emotionally but the emotional drive we get here is enough for this kind of film um so ultimately yeah i gave it an eight out of ten which i think is probably as good as it's ever going to get for me in this kind of film well i have to say again the dark knight is one every time i go back to it i kind of think is this going to be the time where I bump it up to a 10? <laughs> and every time I come away thinking like, no, this is never going to be a 10 for me. It's not that good. It's it's a, gr- it's a really great film, but there's enough wrong with it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's undeniably a good film. I just, I cannot separate it from how arguably overrated it is as yeah. well. Like, yeah. Like people are like claiming it's this generation citizen Kane, and it and it isn't. I mean, it's it's number four on IMDb's top two fifty films of all time right now. Yeah, like its place at number four is ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah, and people spread it out into its uh, prequel and sequel as well, where they're then like that the Nolan Batman trilogy is the one of the greatest trilogies of all time, and and that's ridiculous as well but um i i give it i give it an 8 i give it an, an 8 it's it's it deserves an 8 but i i am just so um and so bringing this full circle in a, wow. in a bit of structure that christopher nolan would be proud of that is inception which um. very similar to the dark knight i think suffers from being incredibly overrated <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, I I I went into it at the time without that because you know he was starting to become a household name, Christopher Nolan. But I don't think he was quite there yet when this came out. Inception has become this you know greatest film of all time kind of film, number thirteen on IMDb's top two fifty. Jesus Christ! Um, <laughs> yeah, but who's who's rating things on IMDb? You know, is my mum? Young white man. Nah. I mean, you do. You can get a breakdown of um, exactly the demographic that's rated it. Should we have a look? Yes, please. So, Inception, number 13 on IMDb's top 250 of all time, with a score of 8.8 out of 10. Uh, that breaks down as... Let's have a look. Males under 18 give this film 9.1 out of 10. For God's sake. That is the highest rating any demographic gives it. Uh, The lowest rating demographic is uh, men and women both aged over 45. They both give it an 8.1 out of 10. So 
you know. So everybody likes it, but those tweens really like it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, again, the female characters in this are not strong, but it, this this oh, doesn't we'll get there. this doesn't feel like a boy film, like oh, like Batman is. It's it's you know, it's not about oh, look, guns and explosions. Yeah, it has all that, but it it frames it in a in a slightly more palatable way. They put a couple of women in this time to you know, one of whom kills herself at least twice. What's wrong with Ellen Page, though? Come on, what's wrong with her character? Firstly, her name. <laughs> well, yeah, look, it's a very unsubtle nod at the fact it's that It's terrible, going into and I'm not seeing any of the men, except the men that are people of colour, uh, having the same treatment done to their names. It's like Christopher Nolan uh, was... Leonardo DiCaprio whoa, 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 is called whoa. Cobb. He is called Cobb. What the fuck is that? <laughs> I'll tell you what a Cobb is. A cob is what you get sweet corn on. Or, if you're from the Midlands, inexplicably, it's what they call a bread roll. <laughs> it's also a male horse. It is not Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> what the fuck kind of name is cob? <laughs> it is a shit name. Yeah, it's a shit name, but it's nowhere near as shit as, like, basically, Christopher Nolan did a ten-year-old me and went to babynames.com and typed in, what do uh, a name that means evil? Mild. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, we'll give it to the lady. A name that means makes mazes. Ariadne, perfect. Get that I in like there. It. Everyone else can just it. have a Look, normal I, name. Well, okay, if you're gonna do that though, do it to the whole cast. Don't just do it to the two women. And then what else have they got? And Saito, which is the most common surname. Uh, just give that to him. Like literally, it is the most common surname. Um. No one is going to call their daughter, who then goes into ar- fucking archaeology, oh, architecture, structural well, sciences. Did anyone call their daughter that? Off. or Is she a product of Leonardo DiCaprio's subconscious? Oh, maybe. But then why does no one else have a stupid fucking relevant name then? Because he's because he's a sexist man who doesn't put as much Bullshit. subconscious thought Bullshit. into characterizing these women, his female these characters women as his male characters. Have a seven-second opportunity to pass to pass the Bechdel test, and they fail. Mom, can I talk to you about my special time? It's okay. I have one too. Mine is heavy today. Mine is never light. I love you ever since you were mailed to me by a doctor woman. Your special time is your power. It makes you strong like a boob. Strong against what? Scorpions. Female scorpions. They're attacking outside. Come on. Fight them with your heavy special time. You do it too. Hello? Hello? I'm that Supreme Court lady, and you f***ing did it. We We did it. Um, that she, ah, uh, Marianne Cotillard's character is, uh, this is the thing, right, they are still really, I love, the women in these, the women in this movie in particular, I love Ellen Page, I love that when you cast Ellen Page, you know you're going to get Ellen Page, and they don't try and doll her up they don't try and... i mean sometimes when you don't cast ellen page you still end up getting ellen page like with the last of us i don't get that reference but okay all right well that's a great joke if you play video games i know she's in it so no she isn't in it 
She voices it, doesn't she? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. That's um, the that's the joke. They stole her um, likeness for that game, and it's a oh, bone of contention. Oh, I see. I thought she voiced it. Um, no. What was I saying? Yeah. So I really like that. Um, when you cast Ellen Page, you get Ellen Page, and you and you get everything that comes with Ellen Page. Um, and then on the other end of that, you've got Marion Cotillard playing uh, like a fucking Hollywood starlet of a role, like like pure evil glamour puss. Uh, Where, what you keep saying she's evil in this film where have you got that from in the narrative as an audience member you are meant to see her as the bad guy she turns up in every scene to fuck no, everyone over what? how are you not meant to see her as the bad guy of this movie because she's Mal's just a not the villain. of his imagination it's, it's... But yeah, she's, she, fucked, she's a every, manifestation of his issues everything sucks because she is there to make things suck. Of course she's the villain no, of this no. movie. No, no, everything sucks because Cobb is repressing very badly a whole load of grief for his dead wife that he arguably killed. You never blame, as an audience, as a basic movie-going audience member, you don't blame Leonardo DiCaprio's subconscious. You blame the physical character of Marion Cotillard. Oh, I, no, I, yeah. I, with with all sincerity, I never once feel the slightest bit of malice towards Marion Cotillard in this film. I think she's deliberately supposed to be a figure of empathy. You're supposed to feel very sorry for her. Yeah, she's a tragic character. At work. You know, I think if anything, you're meant to... I don't think you're really meant to see a villain in this piece, but if there is one, I think it's very firmly Cobb, Leonardo DiCaprio, and the fact that he's kind of putting other people in danger. He gets his, like, let's say it's not a dream and the the thing topples over at the end. Like, how is that the villain if he gets his happy ending? And not because Nolan is clever or complicated. Fundamentally, this is a man trying to get something and he gets it. And the person trying the obstacle in his way, the villain of the piece, is his subconscious version of his wife. She's not the obstacle in his way. There's lots of obstacles. She's she's one of many things that he's dealing with. But I, I honestly, I, I genuinely, you know, I, I went in 2010 when this came out. You know, I wasn't the pretentious film cock that I am nowadays. I, I, I was a real like. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go to the film and see this big blockbuster, amazing, uh, kind of guy. And and no, I, I genuinely never once even considered the idea that she's a villain or a, a character you're not meant to like in this film. I think she's a very sympathetic character. Her name literally means evil. I don't think it does. <laughs> It means it, what, bad. What, it what, means give me the bad, et- yeah. It is. It's, it means badly, doesn't it? It is the part of himself that he has to overcome, and it's really it's his his memory. It's letting go of the past so that you can live your future. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. It means bad in the sense of like doing a bad job of something, doesn't it? I don't think it means bad in the sense of like nasty malice. It means bad in general, it's malaise, you know. Regardless of the name, what is the actual character? And yeah, I didn't, I don't see it. when she comes in and shoots uh, Killian Murphy near the end, and it like fucks up the whole plan. You're not thinking, oh god, the bad guys come and ruin it. You're you're thinking, fucking Leonardo DiCaprio, what the fuck is going on in your head now? And it, it it's. It establishes very early on that it's it's all in his head. When you're watching it, you're not think. When Marion Cotillard appears on screen, you're not thinking that Leonardo DiCaprio has put her there because throughout the movie, well, <sighs> I was, <laughs> I think. 
okay, well, I wasn't, and, like, that's how I viewed it, and I've always seen her as the villain of the piece. I mean, fair enough, I just... Well, I, you know, I see Ellen Page, like Ellen Page, and, yeah, I definitely come away going, well, that was totally underserved, bit of a waste having Ellen Page for that character, but then I think the same about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think the same about Tom Hardy, I think the same about Ken White. In fact, anything except Leonardo DiCaprio... You could argue yeah. that Killian Murphy has more of a character arc than anyone else, but it's it just yeah. feels tacked on. You know, Marion Cotillard probably gets more acting opportunities than most uh, because she's just got a lot of stuff to do. But Michael Caine does a hell of a lot with what he's given. Yeah, Tom Hardy is inexplicably popular at this point, and people yeah. love him in this film, even though he really doesn't do anything to deserve it yet. Although I must say, I, I actually rewatched The Dark Knight Rises before rewatching this, and it's remarkable how much that Bane voice is actually like just his voice. Um <laughs> it kind of just comes through in this film. Mm-hmm. He's got a very British way of oh hello, I got a dream a bit bigger, darling. <laughs> Put a little wispy over that and it's Bane. It's it's yeah. Mm. I think Hans Zimmer is known for this. Christopher Nolan films are are known for this. But I think more than ever, the music in this film is a technical marvel. You can tell that when Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan get together, they're like, what mad thing should we do with time steps that's actually a secret code that <laughs> unlocks a door? And the, and the But, you know, this film, as I'm sure everyone at this point knows, the the main famous Inception theme is essentially uh, non, no je ne regrette rien, which I can't say at the minute. I can't speak today. The Edith Piaf uh, song that runs throughout the, the film slowed down because when you go into a dream state in the film, uh, your your perception slows down and that becomes compounded each time you go down into a dream within a dream. It's just beautiful because you when you you really pick up on it when you know that's what they're doing. Every time they like get kicked, as it's called, out of a dream state, or they should be hearing the song playing in the film score, you get the which is this slowed down take on that song. just from a technical point of view with what they're doing it's quite remarkable and i suppose that speaks to just how christopher nolan constructs films in a very technical elaborate way but you know it works this that's you raised something there that i want to talk about right i think you know from a technical from a filmmaking point of view this is how films should be made in terms of a director Mm going right every aspect of this film the script the production design the music every shot is going to add to a whole 
And I think this does it really well. And you see that with the prestige as well, uh, to some extent, but for, for some reason that falls flat for me. Whereas this one, it really felt like it got all his ducks in a row and it was all coming together to to tell the same story. And like that's how films should be, should be uh, approached. And I, I think it's very rare in a film of this size and this budget to mm. get that. And I think it's just this, like you say about this, uh, you know, someone who is obviously a great artist give, being given money <laughs> and freedom. Yeah, which is pretty. Well, that's, I, I, I think <laughs> I think Inception really feels like the culmination of a great career, the yeah. peak, if you will. Yeah. Um, whether or not that's true, and we kind of come down the other side, we'll we'll talk about next week. But it, yeah, it feels like this is this artist firing on all cylinders at the highest possible level in a lot of and ways you, and you can tell it's not it's not been thrown together this is obviously something you've been working on for a, a while and all those things like the names okay the names aren't exactly subtle but they're they're all part of this plan oh right well i'm going to call into some kind of greek mythology into this as well like i'm just going to put a little reference in here i'm just going to drop this in here the the song je ne regret rien you know it's all about regretting your mistakes and stuff um so i mean if anyone somehow is listening to this and hasn't seen inception i mean maybe take a look at yourself sort yourself out but (laughs) i mean essentially i don't even know where to begin with the plot it's i spoke about uh loving these kind of concepts that christopher nolan keeps going into with them being kind of odd ones how i love magician movies and the prestige i also love films that deal with dreaming and the idea of going into dreams and again it's surprisingly untouched there's only a very small handful of films i could think of that really go there if you if you count the hundreds of nightmare on elm street movies as one entry so yeah essentially this is a world where the sci-fi technology to go inside people's dreams exists other than that, it's pretty much the real world. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, it's what a heist movie. Yeah, it's a heist movie. Um, yeah. uh, uh, there's this whole idea movie. that you can. I love a good heist movie. Yeah, there's a a notion that you can perform something called Inception, which is you know, as the word would imply, you create the seed of an idea so deep in someone's subconscious mind, planting it within a dream that they think it's their own idea, but it, you know, influences them to do something or behave in such a way. And so the whole film focuses on this big elaborate heist to implant this idea in this incredibly wealthy young heir to an empire to what they're trying to do? They're, they're trying to get into dissolve like... Dissolve the business, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I will dissolve my father's business. For, for business reasons, yeah. Um... So, you know, it's very believable there would be a lot of money put into them doing this thing, even though it's largely quite benign, you know? It's not it's not as evil uh, an objective as criminals may have. It, is a, it does feel a bit flat, that element of it. The, it and it, 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 to be honest with you, it kind of, they forget about it after a while. It's just to set it up. And the whole, the conclusion with Killian Murphy's character is a little bit like, uh, okay, whatever. It's a bit of a problem just because then you've got the Ken Watanabe character who comes across as like a kind of a good guy generally, but it's like, oh, well, you are actually indulging in a bit of like quite serious corporate espionage yeah. and, and, you know, fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. someone over to, to for your own company's ends and blackmailing this guy that you're being friends well, with. Well, he's influencing them, you know. Well, yeah, I, I think it's it just, uh, that could have been a bit better, I think, but, you know. I think essentially, yeah, this is just an excuse for some fun shenanigans. And 
so you have the whole getting the team together part of the heist where Cobb, who is an experienced dream heister, Inceptor, do they say? I don't fucking no. know. No, because um, people think it's impossible. He's an extractor. Extractor, that's it. Um, he puts his team together to help him on his mission. And what have they got? They've got an architect, someone whose job it is to create the the landscape they inhabit. And um, she's the, the like Luke Skywalker of this movie. She sort of she's the audience's eyes and mouth. Yeah, she's yeah. the newbie that they hire in who has no idea how this all works. There is the actor who is there to kind of play different roles uh, by using dream magic to look exactly like different people. Uh, There is the chemist who is there to concoct a drug to allow the guy to be put on, you know, to sleep so they can go into his dreams. Uh, Is there anyone else? Who else is there? Um, Arthur, who, I don't really know what Arthur does. He's the he's the brains behind it all. He's the one who gets everyone together and makes it happen. I, I've heard a very nice theory that um, Inception is because there's there's hundreds of theories about what it's about and blah blah blah. But a really nice theory is that it's a film about filmmaking and that you know all of these people are stand-ins for making a film. Cobb is obviously the director bringing the project together, but you've got a writer, a costume person, an actor. Um, well, in one. Uh, a set designer and you know they have to go in and create this story that puts across this idea in someone's head but that does make the set designer the most important person on set if we're taking well that. maybe yeah christopher nolan may may well think that's uh i think i don't think i don't like theories are cute but like i think they just wanted to make a movie about dreams i think it's more in that sense it's more about i have to create this team what do I know of a, a team that works together? What's the yeah, structure that I, works? This person has this job. So I think it's just using what he knows to create mm. characters. I mean, I, I agree. And, you know, the, the big the big theory is, is the whole thing a dream from yeah. start to finish. And I, I'm always inclined to kind of take films at face value unless there's serious reason not to. Mm-hmm. When people have to start looking at like, oh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio found it very difficult to squeeze through that wall in... Israel or wherever he was um, <laughs> that indicates that he's in a dream and like there's different points in the movie where he he the dream starts potentially that never ends and I think very clearly this film is put together in a way that it is intentionally ambiguous from start yeah. to finish there's a yeah, lot of fair. particularly on this rewatch there's a lot of points that are like oh that's a hint that this is all a dream then is it you well, know, what, Michael what Caine, when find? Michael Caine, his dad turns up to be like, he, he says to him, like, what is he? Father-in-law. His butler. Oh, he's his dad then. I always assumed he was marrying Cuthiard's dad. Yeah, but he's mar- he was married to her, so that's his dad-in-law. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. what? Uh, he, he says to him, um, he says, come back to reality. You know, there's a lot that's blatantly a, a line with intentional double meaning for the people who are going to go back and watch it again. There's no, loads think, of that. I think that's get out of this world. Get it, like stop going in and out of dreams and come back and be with yeah, your children. Yeah. Not that you're in a dream. The- no, obviously the 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 point blank superficial meaning of that line is yeah, stop going in and out of dreams, you madman. But 
it's obviously written in such a way, that line, and I think put there and delivered in such a way that they knew people are going to go back and rewatch this film, trying to figure out if it's all a dream the whole way, and suddenly you've got this character trying to convince him to wake up. It, it, you know, what that's what I mean. Got? I don't. Th- what else have you got in this evidence pile? Um, you never see the spinning top topple even halfway through the film when he introduces the idea of a yep, spinning I'll top. Agree that. Like they make a point of cutting away before it topples. Then, um, they're, they're, that old man. They go and visit a load of people dreaming, and the old man very clearly says, "Like, who are you to say what is and isn't reality?" You know, it's all. Mm-hmm. I I think it's very clearly constructed to work both ways, to be honest. And you know, if if you have to come down on one side, which I don't think you do, I think it's pretty clear that it's real because at the end you see his kids' faces, and he hasn't being able to remember their faces all the way through in the dreams whenever you see his kids in the dreams they're from behind but i think you you can absolutely read it both ways and it 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 comes across very differently both ways because in one reading of the film he accidentally convinces his wife to kill herself and lives with that guilt and in the other reading of the film she was right and it's all a dream and she's gone and woken up and he's having a hard time but you know another 10 years from now or whatever maybe he'll wake up and it'll all be happy i think for me if we jump in right to that end and what it means you know ultimately there's a deliberate scene that sort of basically is ambiguous of you know is it a dream or not and i i think the point of that is not to oh it's ambiguous what do you think it is it's the point is that leonardo dicaprio's character doesn't care anymore He's found his exactly. redemption and, and, and whatever he needed to find in himself. Yeah. If this is all a dream in his head, his head is now settled, so that's fine. Exactly. And it, and it annoys me that people get so hung up, to be honest, on, oh, is it real, is it not? Because it's like, it doesn't matter. That's mm-hmm. not what the film is about. It, like the, like, I guess my point at the minute of saying it's clearly constructed to bo- work both ways is saying that. It's that it doesn't matter. I don't think, you know, I I would be surprised if Christopher Nolan even, if you asked him what, you know, is it really all a dream or is it really reality? He'd go, well, it's a movie. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like there's no correct answer. (laughs) Another thing here is that, um, you know, this is this is known for being an incredibly complicated, confusing film, but. I don't I don't really think it is. I've never found it like hard to follow or understand. I think it's pretty straightforward in what it's doing. Um I I would struggle to relay it to someone. If I had to like draw a diagram, I'd kind of be like uh just because there's so many moving mm-hmm. parts, but like never once when I watch the film have I like not understood what was going on. Well, that's it. It does it does a very good job, and it has to do a very good job of keeping that clear because it is a complex kind of journey. You have to make it clear. It's like if you're going through a maze, you have to keep showing the audience the overhead shot of where they are. Mm. You know, it's like it has to be clear because of it being complex. So, I I think it actually does a very good job of that, like you say. I yeah. think if you and then I think if you try and break it down and go, hang on, if that van's falling for five seconds, that should have been, you know, two minutes and that like I don't know if it quite all adds up properly. Like you gotta take some artistic license, but Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the problem is that people will overanalyze it and not give it that artistic license. It will be just mm. uh 
well, if he says this at this point, well, it must mean this. And I don't yeah. know if you can quite deal with it. I mean, I think essentially Inception is just a, an incredibly well-made action movie, much like The Dark Knight. It's just a really phenomenal film with a great concept, really well-made, put together, but not quite as good as people make out. It's perhaps a bit too long i i don't know i do always kind of feel myself beginning to lose a bit of interest um one issue i would like to raise that i think is valid here that i do have with the film is the film's about dreams but it it really is it's not very dreamlike mm-hmm. you know it, it you you don't get any sense of the ethereal nature of dreams or i was gonna say that you think about how joss whedon used to visually portray dream and there's nothing like that here the best portrayal i've ever seen of of what it's like to dream in film and tv is the uh buffy the vampire slayer episode uh restless which joss whedon of course wrote and directed back in the day which does really get into that it's filmed in a very kind of experimental particularly for tv way but it works remarkably well and i think it's a a real shame that inception doesn't even flirt with that because it just seems so you'd make a film about going into dreams make it outlandish and crazy but instead what we've got is like every layer is like a james bond knockoff and there's not really there's and to be honest you know maybe this is how christopher nolan dreams maybe the man is just an emotionless robot and (laughs) the craziest thing that's ever happened in his dreams is that it went a bit like an mc escher picture once but you know i i don't know and and i get I, i think it's a tonal decision more than anything i understand that like perhaps it would detract from what they're trying to do you know leonardo dicaprio turned around and then he was in his underpants in the middle of his high school and then (laughs) and they sort of do that one of his old teachers turned around and their face is a fish and suddenly they're fish for hands and fish for like if, if it got insane like dreams can i see how that might take away from it a bit but then they flirt with it because the problem is you you have scenes where tom hardy manifests a gun out of nowhere but that's something that like comes and goes like that and they they never like do anything with it beyond that one moment and it's like if you're gonna have a concept like you can just manifest things whilst you're on this heist do something with it i don't know i know i I know exactly what you mean but i think perhaps i hadn't really thought of it that way but i think i like that that they don't do that I like that it's reality because that's my thing. And I think ultimately, if you are just like, oh, what tool do we need here? Ta-da, it's here. Or, you know, we didn't escape through here. Click your fingers, there it is. It feels too kind of superhero-y. It just feels too magic. And I wouldn't yeah, like they that. Are- well, yeah, but then then establish what the rules are with that more yeah, firmly yeah. than allowing Tom Hardy to just do it once in the film out of nowhere. It does very much seem to establish that she, Ariadne, she creates the world and she can't sort of just change it willy-nilly once she's in there you know when they're rushing they need to get to this vault in a certain amount of time you know the whole point is that they've created this journey it's so that it's a challenge for them to get there like so that there's this sense of achievement at the end of it for the for killian murphy's character but you know when they're running out of time they need to get it quicker there isn't just a quick like snap of the fingers we we can make it happen um, there kind of is. She's like, yeah, I put in a shortcut. You just need to open up the hatch and drop down, and you're there. But well, no, she that, made cheats within the game. But she's she. They established. They they even say that it wasn't her who did that, but it was Eames, Tom Hardy's character, who who put that in before right. they went in there as well. It was like it, there's a sense that it's all built beforehand. 
he put in an escape route because he was thinking, oh, I might need that later. But it, it feels like once you're in it, you can't affect it that much. Mm-hmm. But we we've seen her do it, you know, when she's playing with the world and she folds it in yeah, on itself. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not. Yeah, you're right. It's not very defined actually. But I hadn't, it, that hadn't bothered me watching it. To be fair, yeah. see it, that that's my biggest problem with this film is I just think it's a waste of doing something set in dreams. Yeah, and if you're going to do it this way, settle down what you're doing a bit more firmly. But you know that that's my main flaw with it. And other than that, I think it's pretty fantastic job so i mean it's it's visually wonderful we've never really seen anything like it visually and you make a brilliant point about how it's so entwined with the music as well like Mm. it was a wonderful it was a wonderful refreshing cinematic experience i think like Mm. and and it's you know it's it's a rare case of a film that really punches its way into pop culture in a you know leaves it like Every fucking cartoon I watch, I, I love my little, you know, animated sitcoms for grown-ups. Um, they all did an Inception parody because, you know, oh yeah, we can we we can tell stories where you go into dreams. We hadn't thought of doing that. Suddenly, you've got an episode of South Park and an episode of Rick and Morty and then The Simpsons and all this shit where they're going into dreams. Well, perhaps I can help. You see, I have invented a device that allows you to enter someone else's dreams and explore their subconscious. So we can go inside Homer's sleeping mind and find out why he's wetting the bed? Uh, yes, in fact, I just used it to cure another Springfielder of his particular obsession. Normal stew likes normal things. But wait, if those people got stuck in there, why wouldn't we? It's very simple. You see... When the dream experts go in, they attempt to take the subject to a dream within a dream. Like a taco within a taco? A double-deco taco supreme. Exactly. But only dream spies have the ability to go deeper into dream levels, and firemen have the ability to bring ladders into other people's dreams. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa. How could you take a ladder into a dream? Because the fireman dreams aren't like dreams at all. They're more like a dream within a matrix within a dream. Did somebody order a pizza? No. Probably one of them in the dream. All right, I'm going in. <gasps> what the hell? Why would Mr. Goldenfold's dream version of Mrs. Pancakes' dream version of a centaur be dreaming about a scary place like this, Rick? Jeez, I don't know, Morty. What, what do you want from me? Welcome to your nightmare, bitch! Oh, here we go! Holy crap! Looks like some sort of legally safe knockoff of an 80s horror character with miniature swords for fingers instead of knives. I'm Scary Terry! You can run, but you can't hide, bitch! I don't know, I, I think it's significant that there's not many films that have quite that ripple effect across pop culture when they appear. Well, that, that's it. I think it's it's a really great concept. It's quite an original idea, written by someone who, uh, you know, can can form a, a complex structure, made by someone who is using everything at his disposal to tell a story, and yeah. uh, but still has that obvious mainstream appeal of cool, cool action sequences and Leonardo DiCaprio and stuff like that. And... And for better or worse, it completely changed uh, how film trailers have been cut for the last decade as well, which is, <laughs> I mean, it's getting to the point that it's quite infuriating. But, you know, I mean, this this is why every trailer now has that pacing of 
oh, something menacing, boom, fade to black. Oh, something else, <laughs> boom, fade to black. Oh my God, what's this? Duh. Oh, just, it's infuriating. <laughs> but it was cool when they did it back in 2010. And uh, I suppose it's not the film's fault. But anyway, yeah, I, I, everything you just said, Alan, filmmaker operating at their peak, but I don't know, I feel like the cracks are starting to show here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm giving Inception a 9 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I feel like this, I may have been feeling a bit generous, but I gave this a 9. I'm surprised, but... I mean, yeah, I was so... a bit surprised myself, to be honest. But <laughs> I, I kind of felt, do you know what? I'm going to give it a 9. I feel like it deserves it. And yeah, that's um, high praise. Yeah, I mean... Every time this movie is on TV, I will watch it. It's smart enough that it's challenging. I I felt, I know we've mentioned how Leonardo DiCaprio is the sort of standout without trying to here, but I do feel that there's a brilliant ensemble cast on display. And I really get the sense that these people have known and worked with each other over the years, that they're a real team that have come together for this Mm -hmm. heist. That's really lovely. The individual characteristics and personalities that come through are really enjoyable and like, because there's so many and it's an ensemble cast, you know that you can't delve too much into everyone. And the fact that it's a heist movie, the bit of mystery kind of adds to that. I think that it's visually wonderful. I think that never gets old watching Ellen Page turn streets on uh, upside down and in on themselves. Um, I know I've complained about the female characters, but to be fair, I think Marion Cotillard is an interesting character, no matter how frustrating she is in terms of being a stereotype and what her sort of role is. So yeah, I'm with you. I'd, I'll give it a nine. It's a it's a really enjoyable, wow. something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So uh, do, do join us next week when we will be capping off this look at his filmography. Uh, next week we are looking at the latter day part of the trilogy of his. What I mean, what am I saying? We're doing the Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Yes. And uh, predictions, Alan. Predictions. Do, do you think Christopher Nolan's going to stay at number three on my uh, list of directorial <laughs> filmographies? No. Do you think he's going to go up? You're going to go down. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's gonna stay there. Okay. Okay. All right. Have Have you guys Have you guys heard? By the way, that there's a there's a working theory out there that Tenet is a a sequel to Inception, or at least set within the same universe. Have either of you heard of this? I have no idea I've, what Tenet is and, and on any level. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. Though it existed apart from well, yeah. the reason we're doing this. Inception as a concept could could lend itself to. I think it would lend itself to a TV series. Where like you have a hero who has to jump into someone's mind each week and like quantum leap into them and like fix something and then come yeah. out again. Like I think it, you could take that basic sci-fi concept and, and use yeah. it for a lot. I mean, I, I have to say, like Batman aside, I think Inception is the one Christopher Nolan joint that you could very easily make a sequel to. And I, I mean, I know the the cast were all contracted in to to do a trilogy, but that's just standard practice in Hollywood that you know. Standard things. I wouldn't read into it. But yeah, not that, you know, not that he needs to do it. Castless for Tenant says John David Washington as the protagonist, Robert Pattinson as Neil, and Elizabeth Debicki as the estranged, estranged wife of Branagh's character. She doesn't get a name. She's the estranged <laughs> wife of Kenneth Branagh's character. That's literally how she's written on the <laughs> page. It's Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> and, you know, if you if you're 
if you're bored of me blowing smoke up Christopher Nolan's ass, definitely do come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. It's going to take a downward turn. <laughs> we went to see Dark Knight Rises together, so I already know your feelings about that. <laughs> we'll, you knew my we'll feelings on the Dark Knight Rises circa 2012, but have they evolved? I do, yeah. Maybe I've, uh, maybe I've come <laughs> round on it, Alan. Maybe I like it now. Maybe. Maybe I've doubled down next week. Cool. Thank you for joining us, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. We'll, next time we'll get a woman on for you to talk to. Wow. We know that's what you want, really. It's all that matters to you, isn't it? We don't do four guests at once. That's <laughs> insanity. What we'll do is on, like, we'll do, like, a review of the year episode where, where we have, like, we'll throw to different people because we've done plenty of those with more than one woman because we've, like, gone, oh, now we'll throw over to Judy. And what we'll do is you can leave a message for Judy... <laughs> But, Gee whiz, you're spoiling me. But you can't talk to her like properly in real time. You gotta keep that streak up, eh? We'll we'll let you have another woman on. You can talk to them, but you can only talk to them about us. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing you're allowed to discuss. And if you try and talk about something else, I'll bleep it out in the Amazing. edit. <laughs> I don't think Emily has any patience for our little monkey shines. So. <laughs> It's real to her, right? She has to live this shit every day. Yeah. Right, thank you, Emily. Thank you. Sincerely. Yeah. <laughs> 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 We have to lose that sack solo. <laughs>